as I was preparing, I, there's a lot of things going on um, in our church with members of our church, and, and I was thinking that maybe I was going to go a different direction out of Peter for a um, just an encouraging sermon, of, and as I prayed and thought about it and meditated on it, God just kept taking me back to Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. And I think as we go through this, you'll see why he did that. It's the very end of the chapter, and um, last time I preached, we got through verse 18, but to get the context, we're going to look at verse 18 again. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. And this is a this is one of those sermons that I have greatly looked forward to preaching, and I've greatly dreaded preaching at the same time, um, because it is uh, there's a lot of different views on some of these texts. There's and and by godly men who I respect, godly men who I read their writings a lot and have learned a lot from. And there's a lot of disagreement, and so that's. But also, as you understand it, as you begin to understand it, I feel like it opens up a lot of other scriptures, and it and it can teach us how to go about our business and how to fight against the wicked one. And so that's why it's so exciting. And so bear with me as we go through this. And if it's something that you haven't heard before, I just pray that you would consider it. And we can talk about it later, and there's lots of discussion to be had. There's not enough time today to really even get into the depths of it. But if you would, go go with me to, in, to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this morning, what we've learned so far. Um, I thank you for the communion that we were able to take together, for the worship that we were able to raise up to you in song. I just praise you for the fact that we would even want to worship you for the fact that we even can worship you, that we can approach you. God, it's such a blessing. I thank you for your word, and I pray now that as we get into it, you would help us to understand it. And I thank you for the fact that you've even given us the ability to see it, that you've opened our eyes, and that we can understand it, because it's so superior to us. It surpasses our knowledge so highly, but you you give us these windows into it, and I praise you for that, and I pray that's what we would have this morning as we consider these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And I expounded that verse some the last time. But what I want to bring out here in this verse now is that he is talking about us here being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. That's the rebirth. That is being born again in Christ just as he was put to death in the flesh but his spirit remained alive while his body was in the tomb. And we're going to get to that more. But we are that. He has given us that. It's because the just suffered for the unjust, that we can be made alive. 
And it was by that spirit, look at verse 19, in which he also went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And this is the part I'm talking about. This verse right here is, wow, it's profound. There's been many doctrines come from this verse. A couple of Wednesday nights ago, I think we were talking a little bit about some doctrines that come from this verse. And there's been a lot of false teaching come from this verse. But I want to, I want to get this right. Um, as I study this passage... Well, let me read verse 20. He says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So we're going back to Genesis chapter 6. That's where we're going to go, and you can turn there. But as I studied this, I did a lot of reading, and it's quite apparent that there are a lot of experts on this topic and they disagree a lot. Many of the experts on this topic are, are kind of similar to the experts you find on Revelation. You'll find experts on prophecy. you find experts here. And, but they don't seem to know a lot of other theology. This is what you kind of get reading online. You'll get this discussing with people. I don't know why people are drawn to the obscure but that's what this is. This is an obscure passage in chapter 6, and um, it makes it intriguing, I guess. And so there's a lot of people who like to study a lot of prophecy, end times type stuff, and that's, all, that's what they want to talk about is the end times things, but they haven't got the gospel straight. So I, want to, I, I pray that I'm not going to fall into that camp that I'm some kind of expert on this without being equipped in other areas that that's that's the main thing but i believe that what i can do here is i can take this and i can make it apply and we can see how it fits with the other areas so genesis chapter 6 verse 1 he says now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of god saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. And there were Nephilim on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. This is what Peter he refers back to the days of Noah. This is what he's talking about. Um, and then if you skip down in verse 8, it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that's going to be important to remember. So, as we look at this, this is um, I'm sure if you've been around Christianity very long, you've heard different thoughts and theories on this particular passage. And I've been myself in about three different beliefs on what this was talking about. So I don't want to. I don't want to. Now there's a few. There's a few ideas that I will rail against that are just false. But there's also there's about three main ones that I could definitely understand 
the, the argument for that particular thing. But I'm going to show you this morning where I've come to on this, and hopefully it will help you to at least sort this out for yourself. We're trying to find out when, with what Peter's talking about. He said he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And so we, what we need to find out as we deal with this is who or what are those spirits in prison? What is that talking about? Obviously, there's a reason that that's there. Peter is writing it to the church. And we need to, so we need to find out what that's talking about. Um, and so as we look at Genesis 6, we got a couple of things we have to figure out who he's talking about here. The main ones are the sons of God and the daughters of men. Who are we talking about with the sons of God and the daughters of men? There's obviously a difference. He gives two different ways to describe these two different sets of people. Now, when we talk about the sons of God, every other Old Testament passage or reference to sons of God refers to somebody who was created directly by God. Um, Job 1.6, if you remember in Job, this, it says the sons of God were gathered, and Satan was there with them also. He's talking about angels in that case, and in Satan's case, fallen angels. Those were created by God. Again, in Job 2.1, it's the same thing. In Job 38.7, the holy angels are referred to as sons of God. Nowhere in the Old Testament is a human ever called the son of God. Now, later on in the New Testament... He gives that title to us, Christians, which is a pretty amazing thing by itself. Abraham wasn't considered, wasn't called a son of God. Neither was Jacob, neither was Joseph. But as we are born again in Christ, we are a new creation unto Christ Jesus. So it is that creative work again, and we're considered the sons of God. Okay, so when he's talking about the sons of God here in Genesis... It certainly appears that it is a direct creation of God, and I would say that that is talking about a fallen angel. And we know, I, I feel like most people understand that angels are demons, and I talked on this about a month ago on a Wednesday night, are fallen angels. When Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him, and those are the demons that are roaming around, causing all, all kinds of problems and um, chaos in the world today. So I, that's what it certainly appears that we're looking at here, are that, the son, that they are the sons of God. Now, the other view on that is, and I believe this at one point too, was that the sons of God are talking about the lineage of Seth, the godly lineage of Seth, after, and that the daughters of men was talking about the lineage of Cain. Here's where I think that falls short. Shortly after this, this is in the time when God is waiting to destroy the whole earth because there's how many righteous men? There's one. So how could the sons of God be the righteous lineage of Seth and they're all going to get destroyed? There is no righteous, there is no righteous men apart from Christ. So I believe what he's talking about there are demons, fallen angels. The daughters of men, if you look back at Genesis 1, when, men, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. It's just talking about normal young ladies, women who have been born. These are humans. 
the distinction obviously is not between sons and daughters. Those both are using the same terminology, but what you have is a distinction in God and man, son of God, daughters of men. So there's obviously the difference, and I think that's what it is. So if you consider that, the demons looked on the women and found them attractive and took wives. So what we are seeing here is a twisted perversion of God's creation, a twisted perversion of God's normal plan of marriage. We're having, and also a twisted perversion of what God put in the spiritual realm. He, even, even once the angels fell and become demons, they still have a limitation. God still limits Satan. God still limits his demons to the spiritual realm. He's not going to allow them to go any farther than what he wants them to go. You can see that with reading the book of Job would help a lot and understanding this, because God puts this limit on Satan. And Satan's like, well, let me at him, let me at him. And God says, okay, you can go this far and stop. You can do anything you want to except kill him. God has complete control over Satan, and Satan knew it, and the demons know it. But what we're seeing here is we're seeing these demons overstepping that bound, that boundary. And it's a twisted perversion of what God created as marriage. Now, when we talk about when it says they took wives, there's a there's a view there. Wait just a second. There's a view there and, and within this belief that the sons of God are talking about demonic demons. Um, there's a view that when it, it says that, that it was like a sort of rape. But I don't, believe the text, I don't believe the text makes that distinction. It says that they took wives. And the word literally means that they got married. They took wives. They literally got married. These demons married the daughters of men. These demons are marrying women. And so you, the question obviously comes up, how can this be? Because what is a demon? What is an angel? They're a spirit, right? They don't have a body. They're not flesh like we are. That was reserved for humans. We're flesh and blood. We're a different, completely different creation than this spirit world. And Jesus made it clear in Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, right? The demons or the angels cannot marry or be given in marriage. Angels in heaven. There is no marriage for angels or for that spirit. They don't have bodies. So what, what happens? How do we see demons interacting with people, though, as we read through the entire Bible? What do we see in the New Testament a lot? We see possession, right? The demons come into the bodies of men and possess them. And they have a certain amount of control over them. And then all through, in Jesus, while Jesus is walking the earth, and afterwards while the apostles, what do they do? They cast out the demons. And they cleanse the person's body of that demonic spirit. And so, logically speaking, for me, this seems clear. That this is demonic possession going on in the days of Noah. This pre-flood society, and it's like 1,500 and 
about 56 years of history here, and we have about six chapters to cover 1,556 years. There's not a lot of information here. And this is why I would not want to claim absolutely this is what it is. Because there's, too many, there's just too much silence, I think, on the topic. But this is important. Out of all that 1,556 years, he gives us this. So we want to strive at least to understand it. And we know that the pre-flood society got extremely wicked. I mean, that's obvious. God doesn't destroy the whole earth. I mean, if he did, it would have been destroyed over and over and over again, right? So there's something different about this, and that's what I believe it was. They've reached a point so corrupt that demons are possessing men for the purpose of marrying women. You see the twisted perversion here? You see how outside of God's realm, even for demons that is, outside of God's realm, even for people that is. I mean, we have all kinds of twisted things going on that are outside of God's plan all throughout scriptures, all throughout history, and in our present day. But this, this is getting, it's completely upside down from what it was. And then consider verse 3 in that. When you look at verse 3, it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. It looks like the responsibility now is coming down on man for this. We, we don't see anything in Genesis about a punishment of the demons. Now, he does punish them. That's what, the, that's what we're talking about in Peter. But we don't find out about it until Peter comes along and writes this letter. So he's putting the responsibility here on man for what's going on. Why would he do this? Why would, he, why would he put the responsibility on man? I think it's because it's very possible that the wickedness of man's heart has led them to the point where they are willingly inviting this demonic activity. When we talked, um, when I, that, that Wednesday night we talked some about demons and de- demonic possession and things like that, and it certainly appears that demonic possession, I don't know if it's always this way, but when you find it in scriptures and when you find things going on in the world, there is a certain amount of openness that man is before that possession takes place. Now, there's demonic influence everywhere. I mean, they're working, they're... They're influencing us. They're tempting us. They're putting things in man's eye, you know, all those things. But with possession, there's a certain amount. And that's what we talked about. Alcohol and drugs, I think, opens up the mind to that demonic activity. And it, and it, it, it enables the mind to start entertaining these thoughts. And as, the, as you entertain the thoughts and, and the communication starts happening, well, then the lies start occurring. And I think that's what was going on here. So why would man do this? Would it be because they understand that they're going to be destroyed and punished by God because if they do this demonic thing? No. What happened in the very first part of Genesis? What was the lie that Satan told Eve? You will not die. You will 
be like gods. He's given her the promise in a perfect environment. It was tempting enough to her to partake. I want to be like God. Well, now we have 1,500 years of death. We have 1,500 years under the curse. Under the curse. You read through it, it's obituary. This, 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 and he died. Even Adam lived 900 and some years, but what happened? He died. And all these people, that they're trying to fight against this curse now. And also, remember in this 1,500 years too, man is becoming much more and more um, independent. They're learning. They're learning, how to, they're learning skills on how to build things. They're learning the arts how to make things, how to write poetry, how to paint, how to draw, all that stuff's going on in this time. And the more that man, the more skilled man gets, the more artistic man gets, I'm talking about mankind as a whole, just look at the cultures. The farther away from God they draw. I mean, that's what's happening in our culture right now. We've become too independent. We have too many things available to us. It's too easy to live. We don't worry about our next meal very much in this country. Once in a while, maybe, but in general, we're not hungry people. So what do we do? We don't depend on God. Even in agriculture, I'm, I'm an agriculturalist, so I understand there's always been a certain tie of farmers to God. Why? Because they've depended more on Him than a lot of people. Because when the rain doesn't come, but now we have irrigation. We have great big pivots. We can make our own rain. Well, guess what happens? You start drawing farther away from God because you're less dependent on Him. That's what was happening here. And as they drew farther and farther away, as you draw farther and farther away as a, as a culture, what's Satan doing? They're just coming in with more and more lies. You don't need Him. I can make you like God. Do what I'm doing. And so what I really believe was happening here was Men were trying to be God. How did they do this? Well, here's these spirit beings. I can invite them in. I can marry these women. We can make a super race. This is getting, this is a little extra biblical here. This is, it, but I, I really think this is what's going on. Regardless of exactly why, we do know that that's what's going on. So, do the lies sound familiar? what was happening in the Garden of Eden. It's what happened at the Tower of Babel. What were they doing? They were trying to build a tower to heaven. Right? Do we see those lies today? We also see the same thing with Jesus when he was being tempted. What did, Jesus, what did Satan tell him? You bow down and worship me. I'll give you all these kingdoms in the earth. It was just a lie. He can't give him those kingdoms. They're not his. Does he influence them? Sure. But Jesus is the one who's in control of those kingdoms. It was just lie after lie, and that's what we're seeing here. And so this demonic possession comes in on men, invited by the men, and they're marrying and procreating. Now, when you talk about the offspring, that's where you see some differences, a lot of differences in what that offspring is talking about. The Bible uses the word Nephilim. If you use a King James, it talks. It just says there were giants in the earth in those days. Some people believe that it really was a super race, some sort of 
hybrid between spirit, fallen angel, and man. Um, I've even, some people even believe that it was some sort of alien race that came down. That's one of the ones I would tell you, just stay completely away from that. Um, and then there are others that believe that this was talking about the line of Seth that just says these were men. And then the belief that I hold to is that these were just men. They were trying to make some sort of hybrid. But as we read the text, I think it, I think it is clear in what these actually were. Uh, just look back at the text in verse... He says there were giants Nephilim on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. There's the first there's the first key. There's the first term children. That's what we call our children, right? They bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old and men of renown. Every description gives us three descriptions right there that is a human description. There's no, there's no indication that this was anything other than humans. Although they were strong, they were big, but we can see later um, what David fights Goliath, another giant. Um, there's, and I think it was, I, can't, I don't remember exactly where it was, but there was another place where the term Nephilim is actually used, and it was talking about a giant. It's not a race of people, the word Nephilim. It's a description of... Of people, and so they were strong, mighty men. But that's what they were; they were men, all right. And it wasn't to wipe out this race of people. That's not what the purpose of the flood was. Because what was the purpose of the flood? Was it to wipe out one race? No, it was to wipe out everybody. And so everybody wasn't involved with this. So the corruption was partly this demonic activity. But what was the rest of the corruption? The thoughts of man were continuously evil. All right. And then the other reason I would say this is because when you look at the reproduction, the reproductive capabilities, God has not given angels reproductive capabilities. There is no reproduction anywhere in the Bible that angels were given. And so to interpose that I think would be um, would be false now so having that that's the background now let's look back at Peter can we answer the question now who were the spirits in prison he said by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. These spirits that are in prison are talking about those demonic spirits, spirits who crossed the line even for demons. They crossed the line. They went too far. They left the spiritual realm and entered into a man's realm in an attempt to destroy mankind. Obviously, these are haters, haters of God, haters of Christ, and so God put them in a spiritual prison. If you'll look over, flip over to Jude, chapter 1, verse 6, 
He gives another description of that. He says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he was reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. See, that, that can't, that's not talking about leaving heaven, the angels that left heaven. Because he gives us a description of the majority of the, angel, the fallen angels, the majority of the demons, what are they doing? They're roaming to and fro. What is Satan doing? He's roaming to and fro, seeking who he will devour. So he's talking about a specific group here. He's talking about the same group that Peter is, which are in a spiritual prison. And then look at Luke 8.31. We see another indication of this. Jesus, back up to 30, Jesus is talking to a demon here. He asks him, saying, what is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him. This is the demons. They begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. He did not, they didn't want to be sent to the pit, which is why it's this spiritual prison where God has reserved. They knew about it. These demons that are still roaming and still possessing people, they knew about what had happened, and they didn't want to go there. And they're begging Jesus not to send them there. So there is obviously here a spiritual prison, and that's what Peter is talking about in chapter 3. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, the question comes, what was he preaching? Why did he go there? So they took Jesus off the cross. He's dead. His body is dead. His heart had been speared. He was completely dead. They put the body in the tomb, but his spirit, his spirit is alive, right? So where does his spirit go? It goes to preach to these spirits in prison. And the problem that we have with understanding this is we think of preaching as in preaching a salvation message, but that's not what he went to do. No, he did not go to preach the salvation message he went to preach the message of victory. He went to show those demons who he had bound and put in that prison, I won. I won. And we'll get back to that. The salvation, the salvation message, it went to Noah and his family as they were saved from the great destruction. That's what it says right there in the end of verse 20. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. The salvation message goes on to those who are baptized into Christ. Those who relate to Noah through baptism. That's what he says in verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. But look closely. Look closely at this, not to get this wrong. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. That's the salvation message to us at the very end of that at the very end of that verse. What's it say? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism itself, the rite, the ritual of baptism, does not the best it can do is remove the filth of the flesh, right? It would be a whitewashed tomb. It can clean the outside but not the inside. But the answer is a good conscience towards God. Why? How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So look at verse 22. Who has gone 
into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So Christ, while his body was in the grave, has now gone into that, into that pit and preached that message of victory. Can you imagine the word coming down to the demons? Jesus is dead. Do you think they celebrated the death of Christ? We won. They thought they won. Satan was involved with getting Christ crucified. Wasn't he? Wasn't he working through the wicked men, the wicked hearts? Wasn't he there? Wasn't he celebrating? Weren't those demons in the pit that thinking they're going to get released? And then suddenly in this pit of darkness, oh, what a light. In the middle of the darkness, what little thought of victory that was for a split second had would be diminished as the Son of God, as the Christ, the Anointed One, began to preach. Wow. You talk about powerful. That sermon was powerful. You thought you had a chance. You thought you had a chance, but look at this. You lost. The victory has been won. And then... Then, after that, the resurrection. Further proving, further finishing this great gospel. The demons in the pit are now hopeless. They were hopeless all along, but they didn't know it. Now they're hopeless. Satan has now, is now hopeless. Death has now been defeated. Christ steps forth. The lie that Satan has been telling all these people for all these years, for that 1,500 years and on, we can overcome this. We can beat this. I can make you like God. You do this, you follow me, I'll make you like God. You do this, you let my servants come in, we'll make you like God. All that lie has been exposed. All the things Jesus, Satan said he could do and couldn't, Jesus did it. He overcame that death. He overcame that death penalty. He overcame the curse that was put on this earth because of Satan. And then, beloved, in the, the very end, verse 22, who has gone into heaven. Let us not leave out the ascension when we talk about the gospel. The God-man. He's been to the pit as a spirit and preached the victory, and now what's he do? He ascends right through that spiritual realm as a man. The man, the body of Christ, ascends through that spiritual realm. And the angels, as they see him come through, what do they do? They adore him. They worship him. They praise him. And it's an amazing thing. The God, the God-man is coming through. And what do the demons do? They fear and they tremble. And they realize they've lost. And they hate him for it. And they've always hated him. And they'll hate you for it if you're a Christian. They hate it because you're his son. Because you've been adopted into this. And it says all of the angels. And all the powers. And all the authority is subject to him. He, wa he walks up steps of the throne, the God-man, 
and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. And can't you just picture it? He turns to him and he says, It is finished. What's the Father say? It is finished indeed. It's complete. The victory is won. And so that's the message of encouragement I have for you. I can't promise good health on this earth. Can't do it. I can't promise any kind of financial gain. I can't, problem that any, I can't promise that any of your problems will go away. I cannot promise that your relationships will be healed, that your marriages will be healed. I cannot make these promises. I can't make pro- any of those earthly promises. But what I can promise is this. That Christ has won. I can promise you this. He is on the throne. He is in control. And if you will come to him, he will save you from your sins and grant you eternal life. Is there anything else? Is there anything better? All this other thing, all these other things are temporary. But no, he made us a promise. And I can, I can convey that promise to you. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, we can gather here and we can have communion together. And we can worship and we can sing these songs of praise together. And we can sit afterwards and we're going to have a meal and we can sit and we can talk and we can enjoy one another's presence. Of whom, apart from Christ, I may not have known any of you. Of whom, apart from Christ... I have little in common with many of you. But we have that in common, that we worship the Savior, that we worship the King. And if you are not, if you do not belong to Him, oh, what would stop you? What would stop you from repenting today? What would stop you from bowing a knee to Christ, this great king, this great one, the just, who died for the unjust? What would keep you from coming to him? These Satan, these satanic lies that you can do it apart from him? Because we've all heard them. And apart from Christ, you're apt to believe them. But I'm telling you this, don't believe them. They fail every time. Would that keep you from coming to him? What sin is it that is in your life that is so strong that you wouldn't want to give it up for Christ? The God-man. Come to him. Believe in him. Join us in this awesome journey to, to heaven. Join us. Repent and bow a knee to him and watch what he will do in your life. Because it will be amazing. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you, God, for your great grace, for your message of victory, for your message of hope, for your message of love, for the fact that you did not leave us. Oh, apart from you, we would be the same as they were in the days of Noah. We look around and we see so many people who are the same as in the days of Noah. They're just going about their business and destruction is coming. Lord, I pray, God, you would give us boldness to proclaim this. You would give us boldness to warn them. You would give us more of a love for you. (laughs) 
more of a more of a love for Jesus. More of a love for one another. God, I pray, Lord, you would help my heart in all of its weaknesses when it comes to my brethren. That you would help all of our hearts. And I pray, God, that if there's any who have heard this message who are not saved, Lord, that you would use your word, that you would open their eyes, that they would bow a knee to you, that they would fall on their face. God, true repentance, true saving faith would enter their heart and they would be born again. Lord, I pray that this is an encouragement to those who are believers. And I thank you for your word. And I pray that you would magnify it in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.